Hello, and welcome to the History of the Goths. The decade following the Battle of Abrinus was a time of war. For years, continuous conflict between the Goths and the Romans devastated the Balkan provinces of the Empire. This showed the might of the Goths, but also left little for them to plunder in the area after successive raids. Though, this did not discourage another land raid in 254, which reached as far as Thessalonica in the face of Roman infighting. The Gothic land raid of 254 may seem strangely timed, following the so recent Roman raid of Gothic land under a million. It was probably of a smaller size than that of Caneva's earlier raids, yet was so successful due to the withdrawal of Roman forces in the Balkans for fighting in the west of the Roman Empire between Aemilian and other usurpers. Though even with this successful raid, the Goths' focus would move eastward to the Black Sea and Asia Minor. With the Romans busy removing the Gothic land forces from the Balkans and holding the other frontiers of the empire such as the Rhine against barbarian incursions, the Bosporan kingdom in Crimea was left to fend for itself. It did not take long for the Goths of Oyum to dominate and expunge the Roman client kingdom of its wealth. With this small power out of the way, the Goths now had free reign in the Black Sea. In 255, an Oyum-based people known as the Barani hijacked a number of boats and seamen from the remains of the Bosporan navy. We never hear their name again, so it was likely either a subtribe of the Goths or a tribe that lived in close proximity to them. This group took the ships and crew on a raid of the rich Greek city known as Pitus in modern-day Georgia. The assault started off poorly as the Barani only had the ships drop them off on the beach. The ships then sailed off, leaving the Barani stranded. After failing to take the city that was well defended by a Roman garrison, the whole expedition almost ended in disaster. Their luck returned, though, and the Barani found an assortment of poorly guarded Roman ships which they used to limp back home. Using Roman deserters as architects and advisors, the Goths began building warships of their own to add to the collection of former Bosporan vessels. This would lead to the development of a massive plundering naval force that could easily attack any settlements along the coasts of the Black Sea. By 256, a large detachment of these were ready for service, and the Goths would certainly not be making the same mistake as the Barani. The Gothic fleet first struck the town of Phasis in modern-day Georgia, but were driven back. After this failure, they decided to head back to the city of Pitus. They were much luckier than the Borani, for the Roman emperor had withdrawn the garrison defending Pitus for service in the Balkans. The city quickly fell and was stripped of its wealth by the Goths. The fleet then turned south to the northern coast of Asia Minor, where they attacked the well-known city of Trebizond. The Roman garrison of the wealthy city was 10,000 strong, and between the sea and the city stood two walls. According to the historian Zosimus, the soldiers guarding the city had relaxed discipline and were not dutiful in their watch. With this being the situation, the Goths stacked trees against the wall until they could climb over and open the gates for their compatriots. The terror-stricken Roman legionaries within either fled or fell by the Gothic sword. The Goths were quick to plunder the city. They looted temples and set fire to what could be burned, and as quickly as they had appeared, they left. The goods taken from the two wealthy cities were definitely enough to fill the cargo holds of the Gothic fleet, and so they sailed home.
though now they knew how easy it was to attack by sea. The method proved perfect for the Goths. They could appear suddenly off the coast of a city and then raid it and disappear back into the sea before Roman reinforcements could arrive. Many scholars such as Wolfram and Burns have noted that the sea raids of 256 not only devastated parts of the Roman East, but also caused great social disorder. Soon after each raid, rumors spread that Christians had supported the Goths and pillaged the towns in alliance with the evil barbarians. These suspicions were so prevalent that a bishop from Pontus, Gregarius, had to write a general letter condemning the Goths and those who aided them. With the great success of the raids of 256, the Goths planned one on an even greater scale for 257. This one is notable in that it set off from west of the Crimea, probably at the mouth of the Dniester River. The organization for this invasion was on a great scale, and a land force marched south along the Balkan coast of the Black Sea in conjunction with the fleet. It goes without saying that every town along the coast was sacked. It is quite possible that this whole operation was the work of Keneva. It is difficult to find any other person within the Goths who could manage to bring such a massive plan together. This is mere speculation, though. Upon arrival of the land forces near Byzantium, they found a group of fishermen who had attempted to hide their boats and themselves. These fishermen agreed to, no doubt reluctantly, ferry the Goths across the Bosporus to Asia Minor. Once the land force had been transported, there was little hope for the Romans of Asia Minor. There was no adequate Roman army in the area, and so the Goths, yet again, plundered until they could plunder no more. The Goths first approached Chalcedon. The city's garrison, frightened by the sight of the Gothic horde, fled the city. After a thorough sacking of Chalcedon, the Goths moved to Nicomedia and plundered that great city. In quick succession, the cities Nicaea, Sius, Apamea, and Prusa all fell to Gothic arms. The Goths only stopped at this point as a river had flooded and obstructed further advance. The Goths turned back and destroyed the cities they had so recently pillaged, and returned to the fleet which sailed back to Oyum, victorious and laden with treasure. This was yet again another sign of growing Roman weakness. It is not a great sign when the only reason a tribe ends its raid of your land is because their boats are completely filled with your treasure. Valerian had attempted to relieve the provinces of Asia Minor under threat, but his army was hit by the plague, and he was forced to return to the province of Syria. Unfortunately for the Romans, this was not even the greatest threat they faced at the moment. The Roman emperors Valerian and Gallienus faced growing threats from the Sassanid Empire in the east, which eyed the eastern provinces of the empire and the Germanic tribes along the Rhine, who had renewed their great raids into Gaul. Over the next few years, Gothic sea raiding continued, and we know that raids of Asia Minor occurred in 259 and 264. Little is known about these raids, other than that any Roman reproaches were inconclusive at best. The size of these raiding parties that so terrorized the Roman provinces of Asia Minor is unknown, but it would not be surprising if they were of a smaller size than that of 257. Remember, even though these raids were incredibly profitable, they were also costly, Men were taken from their farms and, more importantly, were not there to defend their homes if threats appeared. This was likely a common situation for the Goths, who had to deal with migratory peoples to their north. For example, their war with the Gepids over land. Not to forget also that resistance to the Goths' raids did exist, especially in the person of Odenathus, king of Palmyra, 
who took over many military duties from the Roman Emperor at this time and halted Gothic advances into the inner regions of Asia Minor. Back to the previous mention of other migratory peoples, we do in fact hear of a people that likely just finished their migration into the area known as the Herules, who at first fought against the Goths before settling near the Sea of Azov and becoming their allies. This was probably a common situation for the Goths. Just as the Romans did later on when they faced migratory armies, the Goths probably at first used military force to defeat newcomers and then settled them in Oyum and to the west of the Dniester and relied on them for military support in times of conflict and raiding. This would explain the great invasions that the Goths would launch in the next few years into Roman lands and seas. Of course, this would require some centralized leadership in the Goths, and this is where I believe Keneva was at the time. In the next few years, a certain King Canabades of the Goths will make himself known, and I believe that this is actually our old friend Keneva. As you will see, the upcoming activities of the Goths are all relatively large in scale, and could probably not have been organized by a new leader with little experience. If this was Keneva's work, then his more than two decades of leadership of the Goths would no doubt give the legitimacy to make the upcoming attacks on Rome a reality. In either late 267 or early 268, the largest Gothic fleet ever assembled set out from Oyum. It originated from multiple ports dotted along the coast, especially around the mouth of the Dniester, and included a large contingent of Herules who set sail from the Sea of Azov. The planning for this fleet was no doubt massive in scale, and it is claimed that the fleet contained a total of 500 ships. The new expedition sailed down the Balkan Black Sea coast, raiding towns along the way, and once it reached the Bosporus, it successfully pillaged a small town known as Byzantium at the crossroads between Europe and Asia. The fleet then moved west and pillaged Heraclea Pontica before returning to the Bosporus. These successes were followed by some minor failures, including some attempts to raid towns in Asia Minor and some naval defeats against the Roman navy. At this point, the Goths did something that they had never before attempted. They crossed from the Black Sea to the Aegean Sea. The failure of the locally stationed Roman naval units to not stop the crossing of the small sea lane suggests major problems in the Roman navy. While the Roman sea forces were certainly superior fighting-wise to the Gothic ships and seemed to be able to beat them usually in sea battles, the Gothic fleet may have simply been too large to engage when it was all together. The fleet moved south after the crossing and found victory on the Greek islands of Lemnos and Skyros. With the island's pillage, the Goths seemed to have had a realization that Greece was both poorly defended, as it had always been away from the frontier, and incredibly rich, being an economic and cultural center of the world since the Hellenistic Age. With this in mind, the Goths decided on a new strategy. They split their forces into three groups, and each went to a different part of Greece and Asia Minor. The first group sailed to eastern Greece and landed a mixed force of Goths and Herules at the cities of Cassandrea and Thessalonica. The Roman Emperor Gallienus, upon hearing of the latest Gothic intrusion into the empire, gathered his forces and set out from Italy towards Greece and Asia Minor. The second Gothic force landed in the Greek region of Attica, south of the first group. This group immediately marched on Athens. The ancient city fell quickly. It is said that during the sack of Athens, a band of Goths were about to set fire to the library of Athens when one of their fellow Goths stood in their way. When they questioned their compatriot's motive, he responded in good humor, that the Greeks should be left their books so that they would be too distracted to pick up their arms. 
The once proud Greek cities with their splendid military traditions had degenerated over time, and so too had their military defenses. Just like Athens, city after city fell to the Gothic sword and was plundered. The second group then marched southwest into Ionia and began sacking the ancient cities of the peninsula, including Argos, Corinth, and Sparta. With poor defenses and rich spoils, Greece proved a fever dream to the Gothic forces. While the first two groups ravaged mainland Greece, the third began a route down the Aegean coast of Asia Minor, raiding cities as they passed them, including the ancient city of Troy. It was around this time that the Goths would commit a great crime in the eyes of many heartbroken historians. During an assault on the city of Ephesus, the Goths destroyed the great temple of Artemis. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, Philo of Byzantium had marveled at its beauty almost 500 years before. Its splendor had been admired by all throughout the Hellenistic world, and now it was gone. Certainly this was not the first religious building destroyed by the Goths, but it definitely was the most famous. After the destructive rampage through Asia Minor, the fleet came upon Rhodes and raided the island of Scholars. They continued along the southern coast of Asia Minor and pillaged the island of Cyprus before turning around and sailing towards Crete. This voyage, though, would signal the return of the Goths' misfortune. The winds and waves of the sea destroyed many Gothic vessels, with many being thrown upon the rocks of the coast by storm. Around this time, Gallienus' forces arrived near Thessalonica at the river Nestus. The mixed Gothic rule army was caught off guard and was divided up with many segments of the army being far off. The result was a crushing victory for Gallienus, who in one fell swoop destroyed most of the Gothic and rule forces in northern Greece. Further to the south, the Gothic force that had been pillaging Ionia began marching northeast with the idea of sacking Athens again in mind. Upon hearing the news of the oncoming Gothic hordes, an Athenian historian, Dexippus, stood up and yelled to his fellow countrymen, urging them to remember their city's glorious history. He rallied a militia, and this force, by courage and the fear of a shameful second pillaging of their great city, repulsed the hardened Gothic warriors. The Goths were beaten on all fronts. The first group was demolished by Gallienus, who allowed the few who survived to either take safe passage north back across the Danube or to join the Roman legions. The Ionian Gothic forces were limping north after their defeat at Athens, and quite possibly suffered another defeat at the hands of one of Gallienus's generals. And the third group that had raided Asia Minor was broken by nature and the Roman navy. Gallienus was no doubt preparing a death blow for the few remaining viable Gothic forces left in the empire, when trouble stirred back in Italy. Aureolus, one of Gallienus's generals declared against the emperor in Milan. Gallienus quickly departed the Balkans in response, marching north towards Italy to deal with the threat. The Goths had been given a miracle, and they used this great miracle to go back to exactly what they had been doing, raiding, pillaging, and the like. Those who had been allowed safe passage back to the Danube quickly turned back and rejoined their Gothic brethren, and it is possible that around this time, they were reinforced by more boatloads of Goths and Hruls who had set out from Oyum. It is said that a second Gothic and Hrul fleet had set out from Oyum around this time, but the historian Zosimus claims that this had little effect due to its crews being hit by the Cyprian plague. To the west, both Gallienus and Aureolus had been killed, and so one of Gallienus's lieutenants rose to the purple as Claudius II. In 269, after he had secured his base in Italy, Claudius and his legions 
marched to the Balkans to fight the remnant Goths. This suggests that the Goths still posed a huge threat and were considered more dangerous to the existence of the empire than the provinces of Gaul, Britannia, and Spain, which had broken away under a usurper. The two sides eventually met near the city of Nisus, not too far south of the Danube. The actual battle is mostly a mystery to us, with the exception of a few minor details. We know that the Roman cavalry under the leadership of Claudius's lieutenant, Aurelian, was decisive in the battle. The Roman legions annihilated the Goths, with only a few small bands of them being able to flee southwards, and even then they were continuously harassed along the way by Roman cavalry. This group of Goths eventually holed up in the Thracian mountains and were quickly followed by Claudius's army, who surrounded the beleaguered Goths. By this point, Claudius planned on maintaining the siege and letting the Goths starve and die off during the winter of 269-270. Things would not go as he planned, though, and the Goths the Romans had thought were completely broken and beaten launched a surprise attack on the Roman lines. Claudius failed to respond well to the threat and only sent the Roman infantry to deal with the breakout attempt. Thousands of Roman soldiers died before Claudius finally allowed the cavalry to ride to their assistance. The Goths succeeded in their breakout and lived to fight another day. It would take months for the Roman legions to find and defeat the last of these armed Gothic groups, and it is possible that some of them made it back across the Danube to their homes. Those captured by the Romans were settled within the empire or recruited into the legions. To the south, the Roman prefect of Egypt, Probus, and his fleet arrived in the Aegean to finally deal with the remaining Gothic naval forces in the sea. It would not take long for the superior Roman navy to clear the waters to the west of the Bosporus of Gothic ships, which were either destroyed or fled back to the Black Sea. The result of the sea raids from 267 to 269 were no doubt disastrous for the Goths. The amount of manpower lost was unquestionably horrific in scale. While it is hard to gauge accurate numbers in these battles, the men lost either to death or Roman captivity was probably in the tens of thousands. Claudius himself certainly thought the Goths' defeat was total, as he assumed the title Gothicus, meaning conqueror of the Goths. We should not be blinded by the splendor of victory, though. The defeat was not total, nor were the Goths forever incapacitated. Within the year, Claudius would be dead and succeeded by Aurelian, and the Goths would launch another land-based incursion into the Roman provinces south of the Danube. But that's for next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was probably the most difficult to research so far with all the dates and such. It seems like every historian has his own timeline. Oh well, it's all in the name of fun in the end. So until next time, you've been listening to the history of the Goths.